and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Before we open the Word of God this evening for our study of His Word, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. We do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from all wrongdoing. So that means simply as an operation of the privacy of our priesthood, we have the privilege of uh, confessing our sins to God, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins. And he instantly forgives us because of the work that Christ did on the cross. So let's begin with our heads bowed. A few moments of silent prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word tonight, to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you for its clarity and for the fact that God the Holy Spirit is our teacher and the one who illuminates your word to us that we may see how to apply these principles in our own lives. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to see it clearly and to be objective in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What exactly is the relationship of application to doctrine? That is James' topic at the end of the second chapter of James. So let's turn there and review just a minute the flow of James' argument. This section is perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. In fact, as I take the time to go through and read what other people say about this, it's amazing how confused people are about this passage and many mistakes that they make in trying to uh, interpret it. John, would you crank that down just a little bit, please, so I don't have to hold my pages of my Bible down. This will help. Okay, James starts this last section, the final, con- the, the conclusion of this subsection of the epistle, which began back in verse 21 of chapter 1, by asking the question, what value is it, or what applicational value is it, my brethren, if a man claims he has doctrine, but he has no application, no production? We will in- uh, translate the word er- ergos as production but he has no production, can that faith save him? And we have seen that the word saved is used in three senses in the Scripture. Saved from at the point of what we normally call salvation, justification, saved from the penalty of sin, phase one. Phase two, saved from the power of sin, and phase three, saved from the presence of sin. And we have seen that this is talking about saved from the power of sin, in the believer's life. The question is, can that faith, can doctrine deliver him from the power of sin? And the answer is no, as is indicated by its structure in the Greek. Then there's an illustration given of the importance of application of doctrine in 15 and 16. And verse 17 gives a conclusion, even so doctrine, if it has no production, is dead. And we saw that dead does not mean non-existent, but non-productive. That it means that it once was alive, but is no longer functioning. 
Then there are the famous words of the opponent, the objector in verses 18 and 19. And again, very few people understand it. If they break the flow here into the middle of 18 or they are all of 18, but very few people include 19. And that's important when you understand that verse 19 is the words voiced by an opponent in the debate, someone who is in opposition to James' position, uh, that will clarify things. Many people will quote this to illustrate something. And that's if this is the words of the opponent, then that is not something that is that you should do. In fact, I was reading something this morning by an advocate of the lordship position, and he quoted this to demonstrate that, you see, faith, if you think that faith is just believing facts, you think that faith is nothing more than believing certain facts about Jesus, then you're wrong. See, the demons believe those same facts, but they're not saved. Now, what's the fallacy in his argument? Number one, he's taking 19 as a, as a positive statement instead of the articulation of an opponent. But even if it is the, something positive there, Nowhere does James say that the demons believe Christ died as a substitute for their sins. He's simply saying that the demons believe that God is one. And no one asserts that monotheism or Trinitarianism, a belief in the Trinity or a belief in God as, as one, is necessary for salvation. That is not soteriological doctrine. That is merely theology proper. So he makes a number of errors, and a man of his caliber and background shouldn't be making such mistakes. But see, what happens so often is when you get committed emotionally to a position, very few people have the objectivity to step back and say, okay, I'll reevaluate that position. Now, I always have to caution. Every now and then somebody hears me say that, and they say, well, I disagree with you on this. Let's rethink it. Well, I've rethought a lot of things many times, and I quit doing that because it's a waste of time. So if you don't agree with me on something, don't come up and say, okay, let's test your objectivity. <laughs> I'm objective, and I've reevaluated it several times, and it's, I just don't have time to go back and rethink things like the tongues question or healing or many of these other things that come up, and people want you to go back after 20 years of study and say, okay, let's act as if you don't have any of that, and just start from scratch. That's just nonsense. But verses 18 and 19 are important to understand because it sets up what follows from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. James is acting like a debater. He says, this is my position, that faith needs to have application in order to have value in your spiritual life. But I have an opponent there are people who say, and this is the classic debater's technique about put it, using the opponent's words and then citing them and then refuting them. My opponent says that there's no necessary connection between doctrine and application. See, you believe that God is one. That's your doctrine. And the result is you do well. My opponent. This is what the opponent is saying. The opponent then says, but the demons also believe God is one. That's their doctrine. But they shudder. 
In other words, you both believe the same thing, the opponent is saying. It leads you to one course of action and the demons to another course of action. So this is just an illustration that doctrine doesn't necessarily lead to application. The way you're claiming, James. And James says that's just nonsense. And I'm going to give you two illustrations from the Old Testament in order to show that applied doctrine is what's necessary to advance spiritually. And James uses two interesting examples from the Old Testament. The first is Abraham, who is the paradigm of faith in the Old Testament, faith and doctrine and spiritual growth. Abraham is cited many times by Paul as the example of Old Testament faith. But then James uses another illustration from the opposite end of the social and spiritual spectrum. Abraham is the father of the Jewish uh, people, the Jewish race. And Rahab, on the other hand, is not only not Jewish, she's a Canaanite living in a Canaanite city, but she is a prostitute. She is at the opposite end of the spectrum from Abraham. So by using these two examples, one from each end of the spectrum, James is going to demonstrate his point. Now, we have exegeted our way through verses 21 and 22, talking about Abraham and how justification here is not justification phase one, but that the word dikaiosune often means legitimately validation or vindication. And here we're choosing, just for sake of clarity, to translate it validation. Because there's two kinds of justification in the New Testament. One is before God, and the other is before man. Now, we have looked at Romans 4.1, and we have seen that Paul recognizes this same twofold distinction in justification, where he says that if you do well, you have a basis for boasting, but not before God. So, validation before man is a demonstration of your own uh, spiritual growth and a demonstration of the validity of the doctrine that you say you hold. And last time we went through the life of Abraham and we looked at all of the various tests that God took Abraham through because testing is the way that the believer advances in the spiritual life. We saw this wrong overhead. We saw this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James sets the theme of this epistle. Just to remind you, James says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests. That's the subject. Because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the testing of not only your ability to trust God, but also the doctrine that you have learned, the doctrine that should be in your soul, knowing that the evaluation testing of the doctrine in your soul and your ability to trust God produces endurance. So there's a cycle here. First you learn. Then you decide to believe it under the principle of the grace learning spiral and it's transferred by the Holy Spirit into the innermost thinking part of the soul called the cardia. And there it becomes epinosis doctrine. And that epinosis doctrine is applicational doctrine. And that's what he's talking about here. Once it becomes epinosis, it has to be tested. 
You go through life situations which give you the opportunity to choose whether you're going to solve the problem, whether it's adversity or prosperity, whether you're going to solve the problem with human viewpoint techniques for problem solving, or whether you're going to use the problem solving skills or the stress busters outlined in the Word of God. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance bring about maturity, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So the goal is spiritual maturity. Now here's the process. Phase one, we're saved. That takes us to this block, which is tests of doctrine. We test, we choose positively. We're going to apply doctrine. We produce divine good. We develop a capacity for life, and we give evidence in the angelic trial in the angelic conflict. This moves us up to steadfast endurance. The more we apply doctrine, the more we persist in applying doctrine, the more we grow. This develops maturity and leads us to the adult spiritual life. We do this under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, if we choose negatively, we're in this lower cycle. We produce sin, human good, from the area of weakness and the area of strength in the sin nature, and this is carnal or temporal death. This produces further weakness and emotional instability in our lives, leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And as long as we stay with sin nature control, we're in this lower cycle. Eventually we die, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Then after the rapture, there will be the judgment seat of Christ. During the time of the seven-year tribulation on the earth, Christians will be evaluated before the Bema seat of Christ. Those who have advanced to maturity or who are advancing to maturity will receive rewards and inheritance. Those who have squandered what they had through disobedience and carnality will lose rewards and have temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the blueprint for the whole spiritual life. If you understand this, at least you have something, a framework within which you can, you can patch other things. So we looked at Abram's tests, and we saw that the culminating test in Abram's life was when God tested him and told him to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice him to the Lord. And we reviewed that in, in Genesis chapter uh, 21 and 22 and saw how Abraham was very relaxed in the midst of that entire scenario. Abraham had learned to rely on the doctrine in his soul. He faced a test, a test of obeying God in what seemed to him or should have seemed to him to be a very odd request to take his son, the son that God had promised to him, the son that God had promised to him probably some 30 or 40 years earlier. We don't know the exact age of Isaac, but we know that God first called Abraham when he was in his 70s. And it wasn't until he was 100 that he had the son. And and Isaac is probably in his 20s, so it could be as many as 50 years earlier God had made this promise to Abraham to give him a son. And he had repeated that promise to Abraham several different times before the son was born. And now he is saying that he wants him to sacrifice this son, and yet it is this son through whom God has promised to provide an innumerable, uh, innumerable line of descendants. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that, that Abraham realized that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So this tells us that Abraham by this time is completely oriented to grace. He knows it's all up to God. He has learned his theology proper. He knows the essence box. 
and he is using a, an essence of God rationale to handle the problem. He knows that God is sovereign, that God is the ruler of the universe. So he is authority-oriented to the sovereignty of God. And when God says, go sacrifice your son, Abraham salutes and says, yes, sir, and moves out. God is absolute righteous. So Abraham knows that in God's absolute righteousness, God is never going to ask him to do something that would violate the righteousness of God. So he figures that God has something else in mind. Abraham may have even realized this is just a test. God is absolute just. He is not unfair. So he can rely upon the justice of God. And then God is love and eternal life. Then we look at the three O's. God is omniscient, means God knows all the knowable, and He knows all the knowable simultaneously. God is omnipotent. So, Abraham realizes that even if he does kill Isaac, God can bring him back from the dead. And God is omnipresent, so he knows that God will be present with him. God is also eye for immutable, which means that God never changes. So, if God never changes and He has promised to give me uh, a seed, and that my, my descendants will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, then God is going to fulfill that promise. So God never changes, so I can trust His immutability. And God is absolute truth. He is veracity, absolute truth. So that means that when God made the promise, He was speaking the truth so I can rely upon it. So Abraham rehearses the essence box, and he knows that God will take care of of every one of his of his needs, and he has no need, no reason to doubt God. So he uses the essence of God rationale, and he passes the test with flying colors. And the conclusion is given that James wants us to understand is given in verse 22, where James says, You see that faith, that is doctrine, was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was brought to completion. Now, before we get into our interpretation of the passage, we have to do a little exegetical work. Remember, before you can properly interpret a passage, you always have to make sure that it is correctly translated. Whenever you're working in an English translation of anything, whether it's Spanish or French or German or Latin, you always have to go back to the original source just to make sure you understand it correctly. I remember when I was working on a a master's degree in philosophy at a Catholic school down in Houston, and we were studying Thomas Aquinas, and you study Bonaventure and study all the great philosopher theologians of the Middle Ages, that the, um, the professors would pull out a critical text of, in Latin of their, of their works, of their philosophy, and they would sit there and they would teach from the Latin text of the, uh, of the uh, philosophers. So it's always important to go back to the original text to make sure you have a correct translation because you can't accurately interpret something unless you have it translated correctly first. And James begins this with the verb blepo. Looks like this in in the Greek, B-L-E-P-O. And blepo is the, here, is a present active indicative Second person singular. Notice that. You singular see. Now we're going to see a contrast with this in a minute. That's why it's important that I, I mention this. 
is because there will be a contrast coming up in verse 20, 24, which is also translated UC in the English, but it's a completely different Greek word. That's one reason you have to go back to the original language. Blepo means to see physically. Usually of the two words, there's, there's another word that's used later, horao, H-O-R-A-O, and horao is used more of thinking when the two are, two are used in the same context. And blepo tends to have a sense more of physical sight. Horao is rarely used of that. But blepo is also used metaphorically to mean to think about, to ponder, to contemplate, to discern, and to perceive. And usually, especially the emphasis here on the singular, James is emphasizing this one point that he has just made about Abraham. He's calling his readers now, pay attention to what we just saw. Think about it. Contemplate the example. Abraham was saved back here, and it is not for another 50 or so years that you have the incident in Genesis 22. This is when he becomes a believer, and all through this time there is spiritual growth, and this is the final test with the episode with with Isaac. So he says, you see that faith, that is doctrine, was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. You see, by this time in his life, when Abraham is probably around 120 years of age, he's finally learned the lesson of 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee. So he is casting his burden upon the Lord, and he is trusting the Lord in the midst of this test. And the result is very interesting. The verb, which we read is translated was working, is a fairly accurate translation, is an imperfect active indicative of the Greek sunergo. Looks like this, sun ergo, S-U-N-E-R-G-O. Ergo means to work, and soon is the preposition meaning with, so it means to work together, and it's in the imperfect active indicative. Now, imperfect is the tense. There are two tenses of past time in the Greek. There's the imperfect tense and the aorist tense. Now, we don't have an aorist tense in English. The imperfect tense emphasizes continuous action or repeated action in past time. Aorist tense tends to just summarize it, and we'll look at the aorist in a few minutes. But the imperfect looks at the continuous action. Here it's a a continuous imperfect or progressive imperfect, which emphasizes continuous action in past time from the viewpoint of the speaker. But it's also an active voice. Now, an active voice, that means the subject performs the action of the verb. Now, it's a third-person singular verb, so that means that one thing or one individual is performing the action. And what is the subject of the verb? The subject of the verb is faith, the feminine singular of pistis. Faith was working with works. So that means that faith, doctrine, 
is performing the action. Now, that's a very interesting concept. How can doctrine perform any action? Well, this is why we have to review, go back and look at this diagram that we've gone over again and again of the grace learning spiral. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. Let me slide it under this so I can write on it. Pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine makes all doctrine understandable to the believer. doesn't mean you automatically understand it, but under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter what your education level is. You can understand the doctrine in the Word of God. Now, you may have to think about it a little bit in order to comprehend it, but it is understandable because of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So you have to exercise positive volition not only to show up at Bible class, but to think, to quit daydreaming about what's going to happen tomorrow or worrying about what happened today or just because it's been a long day, you tend to fade out and nod off a little bit, especially if it's a little warm in here. You have to force yourself to concentrate, exercise a little positive volition until you understand it. This is gnosis doctrine, academic knowledge. Then you exercise positive volition again, and God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the cardia, the innermost part of the soul. Now, at this stage you say, okay, I understand it and I believe it. This is truth, and this is going to be part of my life. Now it becomes the innermost part of the thinking of your soul, the cardia. Now at this stage, you have to exercise positive volition again. And that is that when you have various situations in life, you have to decide whether or not you are going to apply this doctrine in your soul. This epinosis doctrine is applicational doctrine, but it is not automatically applied by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't override your volition. But what we see here in this passage is that doctrine is working with application. So we see a connection. You make the volitional choice, but in terms of spiritual growth, there is a dynamic that occurs between the epinosis doctrine and the application out here that in the dynamic of the two working together, spiritual growth takes place. And it's imperceptible. But every time you choose to apply doctrine in your soul, you begin to you advance spiritually. Now, sometimes you can see a lot of spiritual growth, just as you can with some of your kids. When they're between the ages of 7 and 14, you see growth almost on a daily basis. I remember one time my mother looked at my toes down in Texas. Once the dogwood trees would bloom, we'd start going barefoot, and I don't think my feet would see shoes until late October. And my mother looked down at my feet one day. I guess I'd come home from church. That was about the only time I had to wear shoes. And it was the end of the summer. And she said, boy, your toes look all red. Maybe your, your, your shoes are too, too small for you. I said, well, maybe, but they don't feel uncomfortable. I mean, I'd been wearing them all summer, and I was wearing eight and a half, and we went to get new shoes the next day, and I got twelves. Kids can grow very rapidly sometimes, and you can almost see it overnight. But spiritual growth isn't quite that perceptible. But it happens incrementally as you apply doctrine, and there is this dynamic. Remember, the two power sources in the spiritual life are the Holy Spirit 
and Bible doctrine. And as you learn doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it's transferred to epinosis and then applied all under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you will advance and grow. And that's the point James is making in verse 22. You see that faith, doctrine, was working with his application. And as a result, that is, as a consequence of the production, faith was brought to completion. And here we have the word in the Greek, teleao. It is the aorist passive indicative. Here's the verb, looks like this, T-E-L-E-I-O-O. And it means to perfect, although that meaning is very rare in the New Testament. It brings to com- means, means to finish. It means to bring to completion or to bring to maturity. Now, it's in the aorist tense, and that just summarizes the action. This is what is called the constitutive aorist which just views the past action as a whole, describing the action, as it were, in summary fashion without focusing on the beginning or the end of the action. It stresses the occurrence of the action more than the nature of the event. So what we see here is doctrine brings the person to maturity. This is all a process. Doctrine is brought to completion. You see, the ultimate end of doctrine It's not just to know it, not to have a full doctrinal notebook, not to be able to impress all your friends with how much you know about the Bible and be able to quote verses, use all the vocabulary, and and blow them away. The issue in learning the Word is to apply it so that the Lord is glorified. Maximum glorification of God. That's the end result. And this takes place only after you reach spiritual adulthood. We go from spiritual infancy to spiritual childhood to spiritual adolescence and then we hit spiritual maturity. But the end result, there are various stages of spiritual maturity, excuse me, spiritual adulthood and just as in life there are different stages of adulthood and the final stage is spiritual maturity. And this is what Abraham has reached now. And we read in verse 23 that he gains a new title for this. He's called the friend of God. Verse 23 says, And Scripture was fulfilled. Now this is a different word than what we just saw. It's not teleao, but it means almost the same thing. This is the verb plerao. Same word we have for the filling of the Holy Spirit. P-L-E-R-O-O. This is the aorist passive indicative of plerao. It means to fulfill, to fulfill, to accomplish, to complete, or to bring to completion. And in that sense, it is synonymous with uh, teleao. Except teleao usually in, in this kind of context relates to maturity, whereas plerao has the idea of bringing about the fulfillment of a doctrinal principle or of a promise. Now, plerao here refers to the fact that there's a process going on that started with Abraham's initial justification at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. And this took place probably, we don't know when, 
probably when Abraham was in his 50s or 60s, the Scriptures aren't clear. The quote comes from Genesis 15.6, and we have examined that in detail. And in the context, it takes place just after God has reiterated to Abraham that He will give him a literal son from his own loins. It wasn't to be Eliezer, his servant, that he adopted. It was to be his own natural son. And then there is almost a parenthetical statement there to remind the reader of Abraham's justification. And it reads, And Abraham believed God. Now generally, when you read that in the English, you think that, that this is Abraham's believing God is believing the promise. But Abraham's already believed that promise. That promise was stated in Genesis 12, 1-3, and it has been reiterated to, to Abraham before. And in the Hebrew, you have a, a verb tense called... A, you only have two tenses in Hebrew. You have the perfect and the imperfect. And they serve all kinds of duty. The perfect tense has simple past meaning, and it also has what we would call, in English, past perfect meaning. The imperfect serves for both present tense meaning and future tense meaning, depending on context and a number of other syntactical features. So when we read in the Hebrew, and Abraham believed God, it should be understood as a past perfect because... He's not talking about the events of Genesis 15, that that's when Abraham finally believed God, but he is reminding the reader at some indefinite time in the past, probably when Abraham was around 50, Abraham understood the gospel and trusted God. And it was at that point that God imputed his own perfect righteousness to Abraham, and it was on the basis of that imputed righteousness that Abraham was saved. And that's the meaning of the passage. And Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15.7. And then we have another Old Testament quote following that, where it says, And he was called the friend of God. Now, he wasn't called the friend of God in Genesis. This comes from two passages. In Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, we read, and this is a prayer. The context of, Gen- uh, of Second Chronicles is that Jehoshaphat, who is a king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, is under attack from, a, from an alliance comprised of the Ammonites and Moabites and a couple of other uh, external enemies of Israel. And they are about to attack, and they're on the eve of a major battle. And Jehoshaphat calls the nation together for prayer to God. And in the midst of that prayer is, is Jehoshaphat. Now, this is an important thing to notice when you pray. I've made this point before, the prayer should be doctrinally based. In other words, you should understand some things about God and how God works in human history so that you can build a case with God based upon the Scriptures for why He should answer your prayers. And this is a great example you ought to go back and study at some time. We don't have the time to do that right now. But in Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat is going to make a case for why God should give them victory over the enemy. And he starts building his case historically. He said, God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend, forever? That's where we get the phrase that Abraham is the friend of God. What Jehoshaphat is doing is reminding God, you made a promise back there in the Abrahamic covenant. You began to fulfill that promise under Joshua when the people invaded the land and they drove out the Canaanites. And then he continues to rehearse 
all the things that God has done to fulfill that covenant. And then he is going to conclude with his request, his petition to God to give them victory over their enemies. So the concept of Abraham being the friend of God comes first from Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, and secondly from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. Isaiah 41, 8. Isaiah 41, 8 we read, But you, Israel, God is speaking. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. So God calls Abraham my friend. And this is a very important term because it indicates a close relationship with Abraham based on Abraham's advanced maturity. So even though God's love for us never changes, that God always has personal love for us, maximum personal love for us, no matter how carnal we are or how spiritual we are, God seems to have a special designation of closeness for those who advance to spiritual maturity. We see that in the Old Testament with Abraham as a friend of God, and David is called, even in spite of all of of David's carnality, in spite of all of his sinfulness, God's title for David is that he is a man after God's own heart, very close to God. So even though God loves us with the maximum amount of love, and that love never changes, it's not based on what we do, but on what Christ did, as we advance to spiritual maturity, there is a special level of rapport that the believer can have with God as a result of his advance to spiritual maturity. And I think that this is going to be reflected on the believer when we get to heaven. Now, these are Old Testament saints, but we can draw the analogy to the New Testament that there are those who are going to advance to spiritual maturity uh, in, the, in the church age, and they're going to have positions that are very close to God when we get into the kingdom. They will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ based upon the tremendous capacity that they develop during their life on the earth. So Abraham is called the friend of God. And then James comes to the conclusion of this section, and he uses a slightly different word than the one we saw earlier. And this is the present active indicative third person plural of horao. which means to to see, to pay attention. It's distinct from blepo in that blepo usually indicates a single look, and in this kind of a context, looking at a single point, whereas horao emphasizes the entire argument, exercising discernment in the mentality of the soul and focusing on the, the whole argument that he has constructed. So it's... In a sense, it's like saying, okay, let's wrap this up. We've got a conclusion here. We've examined everything about Abraham. And now you can see clearly, you can understand that a a man is justified by works. Now, there's no problem with the translation to that point. But as we have already seen, the second phrase has a major translation. And that is that in the English it's translated, and not by faith alone. And that word alone is a translation of the Greek adverb monon, M-O-N-O-N. But in the English, alone modifies the word faith. Faith is a noun. 
adjectives modify nouns, adverbs modify verbs. Now, the second clause has an unstated but obvious verb, and that is justification. He just doesn't repeat it. We'll repeat it for clarity of translation. And we will put alone in its proper place as an adverb modifying the verb. And it reads like this. You see that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. Let me say that again. You see a man that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. In other words, two different kinds of justification, not just one. The way the English is mistranslated makes it appear as if there's only one justification which includes both faith and works. But when you properly translate the Greek, it makes it clear that there are two kinds of justification and that James is talking about justification by works or validation by works in terms of one's spiritual life on earth in phase two. Then he comes to the second illustration in verse 25, and this is from the life of Rahab. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Now remember, the Bible was written in Koine language, so this is Rahab the hooker, or Rahab the hoe. However you want to put it in your particular vernacular, the Bible was written in the common Greek, the language of the common man on the street, so harlot is a little antiquated in what Elizabethan English for modern ears, so let's get this down. In the same way was not Rahab the hooker also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Well, let's flesh this out a little bit and go back to Joshua chapter 2 to understand what he is referring to. Joshua chapter 2. The Israelites are now on the verge of finally entering into the land that God has promised them. Forty years earlier, they came to Kadesh Barnea. They sent spies into the land, and the spies came back. They sent twelve spies, one man from each tribe, and the spies came back, and the spies said, there are giants in the land, there's fortified cities, and the people are too numerous. We can't defeat them. They misunderstood their operating order. Their operations order was to go into the land and to do a reconnaissance to see what was there. They were not told to see if we can defeat them, but to see how we're going to defeat them, because God had already promised that the Israelites would defeat the Canaanites. But when they came back, ten of the spies said, the obstacles are too great, we can't defeat them. The only two that stood up for for going into the land were Joshua and Caleb. And they said, God is more powerful than the Canaanites. We can take them. Well, because of the disobedience of that generation, they all had to die before they could go into the land. The only two that did not die were Joshua and Caleb because of their trust in the Lord at Kadesh Barnea. So now, after 40 years of wandering in the, in the desert, in the wilderness down in the Negev, the Israelites made their way up the eastern side of the Dead Sea and the Transjordan, and they're now at a place called Shittim, which is located seven miles east of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. And they're encamped there, and they're on the verge of entering the land. Now, this is not a secret. There are between one and a half and two and a half million Jews out here 
waiting to go into the land. Not only that, we learn from this passage that the word has gone on before them, and the Canaanites are fully aware that their lease on Canaan is short-lived, and that the Jews are intent on taking it away from them, and they have heard word of how God separated the waters of the Red Sea, and how they drowned out the Egyptian armies, and they have heard of how the Israelite armies have defeated various other armies of the ancient Near East, including the armies of Og and Sihon over in Moab and Ammon. So as they sit out here, Joshua says, okay, we're going to do what we did the last time, but I'm going to be a little smarter. We're going to send out a couple of spies. We're not going to make a big deal about this. We're not going to publicize it. We're not going to tell everybody because I know how these Jews are and they're just going to get all upset if they don't come back with a good report. So we're going to send out two spies secretly. Nobody will know about it. They're going to go incognito, send them in to check out Jericho so that I can get some good intelligence to find out how strong the walls are, where the towers are, what kind of defenses they have, how many people are there, and the general lay of the land. So in verse 1 we read, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim. See, he doesn't even want the Jews to know about it because if they come back with a bad report, then everybody will rebel again. So it's going to be kept secret. It says, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now we have to do a little isagogics. Isagogics mean that you have to do a little historical analysis. It means that the Bible, to be understood, must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. And apparently among the Canaanite culture that an innkeeper provided a little bit more than bed and breakfast. And so prostitution was practiced in the local inns by the inn. All their guests, and they were going, what's the phrase? They were going to do more than just keep the light on. So Rahab was apparently an innkeeper and provided a lot of extra benefits to those who stayed at her inn. Now, that's our introduction to Rahab. Now, she does not know who they are. They're incognito. And yet, they're not, their disguise is not successful for the king of Jericho realizes who they are. In verse 2 we read, Behold, men from the sons of... He says, Behold, men from, from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have, who have come, come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men. Apparently she realized they weren't who they claimed to be. You know, there are so many tantalizing details in this passage that aren't told us. But apparently she realized who they were, and she hid them before the king's men got there, before the local gendarmes knocked on the door. She took them up on the roof where the flax was laid out. Now what you would do is you would take stalks of flax, you would soak them in water, and then spread them out on the rooftops, and the hot sun would dry out the flax, and then they would take the flax and they would weave linen from it. So she hides the men among the flax up on the roof. Now her house apparently was in the wall of the city. Jericho 
had a, uh, at least from the archaeological remains, it was a small fortified city that covered about 10 acres. So you can imagine that, the size of the town. And it was surrounded by a wall that was about 17, 18 feet tall. And it was probably quite thick because houses were built into the side of the wall, people's dwelling places, and her inn was probably built right into the wall on the interior side of of the wall on the city side. And each corner, there was a 20-foot, 25-foot high tower that had a 20-foot diameter. So that was their protection, their their blockhouse, so to speak, on each corner to to protect where they, if they were attacked, they could get the enemy in a good crossfire. So her house is in the wall, and she's using the top of the wall as a place to lay out the flax, and she hid the men up there, and then she lies. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. So far, she's telling the truth. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue, pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, this generates all kinds of, of uh, moral and ethical problems for most interpreters of the Scripture. They say, how could she do this? Well, either she's lying and that's wrong, or this is a military situation. And one of the naughty problems, I think, in all of ethics is the clear mandates from Scripture not to lie or be deceptive. And yet, I know many men who are operating and their full-time job is military intelligence. And I think that under a military scenario, there is not a conflict here, and we ought to interpret this entire situation as a military situation. Rahab is clearly a believer by this time, and her allegiance is to God. And so she might have been wrong, I'm willing to admit that, she might have been wrong in lying, but if we view it as a military situation, then it wouldn't necessarily be wrong in, in the, the deception because of the military scenario. But I don't want to get caught up in that right now and that trying to unravel that moral dilemma. We'll just move on. She had brought them up to the roof, she, verse 6, hid them in among the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. And the gendarmes take off on a wild goose chase And she goes up to the roof, and then in verse 9, listen to what she says to them. I know that Yahweh, she uses the personal covenant name of God, which indicates that she knows some doctrine. She knows something about the Abrahamic covenant. She knows something about the history of Israel. And she knows something about God's relationship to Israel. She says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. So she has some doctrine in her soul. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. So there's panic in the city because Jericho is only about six or seven miles on the, on the west side of the Jordan. So there's only 14 miles between the city of Jericho and an army of approximately 600,000 men. So they're beginning to quake in their boots. The, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og. Now, Og was interesting. Og was one of the last giants in the Old Testament. In fact, he is an ancestor of Goliath. Og was of the Rephaim, and his beer 
upon which they laid his body. That's B-I-E-R. I had to spell that for some of you. The beer upon which they laid his body was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide in order to accommodate the man. Now, Goliath was just short by comparison. Goliath was only 10 feet tall. He was the run of the litter. But Og was one of his ancestors. And Og was quite large, 13, probably 12 and a half feet tall. And who knows how heavy he was, but, but he probably had a, what, what, the original barrel chest you might say. Six feet wide, 13 feet long and six feet wide. And the Israelites had defeated them and their armies. So that was quite impressive. Verse 11, And when we heard it, our hearts melted away, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. See, she recognizes God and she believes in Yahweh. And so she is a believer at this point and has been. We don't know how long. It could have been just a few days. Maybe this evidence of the latest military defeat was the last thing that she heard about and she realized that if God could give them victory, then He indeed was God. So Rahab is a believer and she has some doctrine which is clear from what she says. And so she makes a decision to cast her lot with the Israelites. Verse 12, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you. And the word here is a very well-known Hebrew word, chesed, which has to do with faithfulness and love. I have dealt faithfully with you. You also deal faithfully with my father's household. And this is always a word that is related to faithfulness to a covenant. And she's asking them to enter into covenant with her to protect her and her family. That's her priority. And the men promised that. And she let them out secretly later on that night by a rope. And they left and went back to the Israelites. And then when Joshua attacked after their seven-day siege, and then the walls came down, Every area came down except the area where Rahab's house existed. And there was a scarlet rope that she let out from her window to identify where her inn existed. And she was protected and she survived. She was the only survivor. She and her family were the only survivors. And everyone else in Jericho was slaughtered. Man, woman, child, cattle, sheep, all the livestock... God said everything is to be destroyed because everything has been, all the human beings have been tainted by idolatry and He didn't want the Jews to be compromised by the Canaanite idolatry. But why did all the livestock have to be slaughtered? Because God wanted to show that He would sustain them by His own power and they did not have to rely upon the goods of the Canaanites for their own sustenance. So God demanded absolute destruction of the enemy. And eventually they failed to do that. They, they did it at Jericho. They didn't do it at a few other places. And that's why they had so much trouble during the period of the judges. is because they didn't completely obey God. They didn't completely annihilate the Canaanites and the Canaanite culture. And in fact, they intermarried with them eventually. And as a result of that, the gods, the idolatry, and all of the insidious religious practices of the Canaanites survived and came back and infiltrated into Jewish culture and eventually 
destroyed both the northern and southern kingdom because God had to discipline them for their idolatry. So that is the reason why God wanted absolute destruction. And this again shows a principle about warfare, that warfare is not inherently wrong, but living in a sinful world, warfare is good and necessary, and God authorizes it at times. So I know that shocks some people because they think God is against war because there's always somebody who comes along and says, well, doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not kill? But the word translated kill is the Hebrew word ratzach, which means to take a life criminally, that is to commit murder. It is not one of the words used for slaying the enemy in combat. Neither is it a word used for self-defense. It is a word that specifically means homicide. So the next time you hear one of these guys get in a debate over gun control or pacifism, always remember when they say, Thou shalt not kill that they don't understand what the Bible really says. It says, thou shalt not murder. So this brings us now to the end of James 2. Rahab was justified by her works. Her works, that is, when she let the messengers go, that validated the doctrine that was in her soul. In spite of what might have happened to her in that context, she could have been arrested and perhaps lost her life. She was going to apply doctrine and she was going to maintain her allegiance to Yahweh. And then James concludes in verse 26 by saying, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And we have seen that dead means that something had to be alive first before it could die. And James draws an analogy between the body, that when the body is dead, when the spirit is absent from the body, the body is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It is works that brings faith to completion in the same way that the Spirit brings the body to life. Six points in conclusion of James chapter 2. First point, James' theme from James 1.21 to 2.26 is the importance of applying doctrine. James is not minimizing the importance of doctrine, but he is stressing the priority of application. See, today we live in an era where you'll hear so many people say, Well, we just learn too much doctrine, and there's such a gap between how much we know and how much we apply. Well, there's a gap between knowledge and application in every single field of endeavor. We all know a tremendous amount of information. We don't use very much of it on any given day. But over the course of our lives, we use most of it at one time or another. Some things we only use periodically. We don't need to use it very much. But when it's time to use it, time to apply it, we need to know it. James is not minimizing the importance of doctrine because James realizes that you can't apply what you don't know. And before you know something, you have to take the time and the discipline to learn it and to make sure you really understand it. And that takes dedication, concentration, and a lot of endurance. So he doesn't minimize the importance of doctrine, but he stresses the fact that it doesn't end with accumulation of knowledge and facts. That's just the starting point. It ends with application. Point number two. Hearing doctrine without application is simply the accumulation of gnosis doctrine in the mind of the soul, the mentality of the soul. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, that produces arrogance. So if you stop short with just academic knowledge, All you're going to produce in your life 
is arrogance. And remember, God makes war against the arrogant. According to 1 Peter 5, 5, Proverbs, which is a quote from Proverbs 3.34, and is quoted again in James 4.6. Normally that is translated, God is opposed to the arrogant, but the Greek word is antitasso, which means to oppose, to resist, or to arrange yourself in battle against. So God makes war. He arranges himself in battle against the uh, arrogant believer. Why? Point number three. God's plan for the believer is to bring the believer to spiritual maturity so that the character of Christ is manifest in your life. If you are a believer, that is God's plan for your life. If you are negative to doctrine and living in carnality, then God will intensify His discipline through three stages of divine discipline. Warning discipline, intensive discipline, and dying discipline. Failure to confess your sins and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and recover fellowship with God Failure to learn and apply doctrine will guarantee that you will have the most miserable existence on earth. You will continually be under divine discipline. God's plan for the believer, point number three again, God's plan for the believer is to bring the believer to spiritual maturity. If you don't get in line with God's plan, then you will be under divine discipline and your life will be miserable. Point four, spiritual growth and spiritual advance comes through one continuous, repeated attendance at Bible class to learn doctrine. Two, operation of the grace learning spiral so you can move from gnosis to epinosis. And three, the exercise of positive volition to apply epinosis doctrine in the midst of the tests of life. Let me go over that again. There are three stages of spiritual growth. One, continuous and repeated attendance at Bible class so you can learn doctrine. Two, Operation of the grace learning spiral under the filling of the Holy Spirit so you can move from gnosis to epinosis. And three, the exercise of positive volition to apply epinosis doctrine in the midst of the tests of life. Point number five, the only way to pass tests in life is to have doctrine in your soul as epinosis doctrine. As you apply that doctrine, which James calls faith, It works with your application to advance you to spiritual maturity. If you have doctrine without application, then you will never advance spiritually and you will be miserable. And finally, point six, if you apply doctrine in the midst of the adversities and prosperities of life, then no matter what your circumstances are, you will always have the most incredible happiness, stability, and tranquility imaginable. When you read spiritual maturity and you're sharing the happiness of Christ and you have that inner happiness, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, then you can ride through any situation with tranquility, emotional stability, and a level of happiness that very few people can ever imagine. And that is James' goal, is to help us to understand those dynamics for the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at your word this evening to understand the entire process of spiritual growth and we pray that it would motivate us and challenge us with the importance of learning doctrine and making it real in our lives and applying it so that we can advance to spiritual maturity because only then can we really achieve the status of positive witnesses in the angelic conflict and only then can we glorify you to the maximum. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things in Jesus' name. Amen.